morning, um, we're actually going to look at um, Ezra chapter six and a half. And you're like, what do you mean Ezra chapter six and a half? Um, let me explain. The book of Ezra, the first six chapters, take place up to April of 1515 BC. So 1515, hold that number. The opening verses of chapter 7, the end of chapter 6, 1515. The opening verses of chapter 7 take place when Ezra is journeying to Jerusalem in 458. It's about a 50-year span between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. And you don't catch that a lot of times in prophetic writings. It's like, oh, and so this just happened. Like, of course it just happened. But it's about 50 years later from the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7. And in that span, a lot of things happen. And in between that span, during that 50 years, we have the writings of the book of Esther. That takes place right between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. So we're actually going to turn to the book of Esther and we're going to study Esther together before we go into Ezra chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can get over to, to the book of Esther right now. This is what's happening between the end of chapter 6 in Ezra and the beginning of chapter 7. The story of Esther. Now, how many of you are familiar with the story of Esther? Anybody? Kind of like, uh, I, yeah, I, I have a feeling I, most of you have heard the story at least, um, are somewhat familiar with it. David and I wrote a curriculum for the youth group in Esther. We've actually taught it twice to the youth group um, through the book of Esther. So we have a, a pretty, pretty good understanding of the book, and we have a lot of fun with it. It's really a great study. Um, and though we've studied it together, I think every time we go through this book, we find more to nerd out on. There's more that we need to learn and more that we need to kind of get a hold of in this book, um, even though we've, we've taught it and, and studied it many times. So one of the events that takes place in the book of Esther, kind of jumping ahead a little bit, just because I want to give you some context here, one of the events is the Purim. And the Purim was this, is this feast, and it's a feast of chance. The Purim were like casting dice. It was, this, it was this chance to see when they should do certain things. And we've had a lot of fun with that with the youth group too. But this feast or this festival of Purim actually still takes place every year in, in Israel, and the dates for that event were this past week, Thursday and Friday. So I thought that was really cool. I started Googling it. Now, if you want to look at some bizarre stuff, Google Feast of Purim, P-U-R-I-M, but do it after the sermon, not right now. Crazy. Um, and I'm going to say for me, as I watched a lot of these videos and, and I went through how they celebrate this festival, for me, it seems like they've lost a lot of the original meaning and intent, kind of like we have done in many of our Christian holidays, where the festivals have become the big event, not what they stood for in the first place. Um, but it's crazy stuff. Now, during this festival, the entire book of Esther is read. It's part of the festival commandments. You have to read the entire book of Esther. And when they do it, they often are in costume and they have people acting out each part. And when they have noisemakers and when the bad guys show up, they make noise and they boo. And when the good guys show up, they cheer. And it's, it's quite the event as they read this book. Every year, this story is shared over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, when I tried to find a graphic for the 
for this actual series. David came up with this one, which I think is really cool. But I couldn't find anything online except partying and the Purim. I couldn't find anything just about like Esther. It was just all about the festival and, uh, and having a, a great time, which they definitely do during this festival. But there's some other things that are unique about the book of Esther. Not just that it's a festival and that there's a festival involved and that it's read every year. Um, it's one of those books that's completely narrative. It's, it's just a story from beginning to end. Um, it also is one of those books that shows the upside-down economy of God's kingdom, how God works in ways you don't expect, through people you don't expect, to do things that you kind of do expect, um, but you just didn't expect it to happen that way. It's really cool stuff. Um, it's also one of two books of the Bible that never mention God. What's the other book? Song of Song or Song of Solomon. Yeah, there's one you probably don't read with your kids, but and it's one you don't often hear preached. And I think you don't often hear the book of Esther preached either because it's one of those books that it's, it's a story, but you, you don't go through it and just pick out, here's 10 lessons you need to learn from the book of Esther. That's not what it's written for. So it's, it's actually kind of challenging to preach through because when you get to the end of, the, of each section, you're like, okay, so that's the story. Let's continue next week. And you're, everybody's waiting for the, well, what do I do with that? And that's not the point of this story. So some of this is going to drive you crazy if you're like looking for all the 10 points at the end of a message. But I think some of you will also enjoy it as well. I'm hoping anyway that you'll enjoy going through it. It's in God's word and it's important. But one of those unique things is that it doesn't actually mention God. And that kind of brings up a question. How does a book that never mentions God end up in the Bible? Right? The Bible, which is designed to reveal God to his creation. How does a book that never mentions God end up in the Bible? I think it's because one of the deep rooted themes of the book is God working even when he appears to be silent or distant. And I think that that's a theme that we have to really get a hold of if we're going to have a strong theology, a strong belief and understanding of God. Have you ever been through a season where God seemed silent? If so, you may know this message very well. If you're going through one of those seasons now, this book is meant to remind you that God is always present. He's always working, even in the midst of persecution or oppression or displacement, or struggle or challenge. Just because you don't hear God or see God doesn't mean that he's not there and that he's not working. And the book of Esther is one of those books that by, by not mentioning God, but mentioning so many circumstances and situations that just happen, make you have no choice but to understand that God was in, at work in all of this, even though he appeared to be silent. So now that you're at the book of Esther, let's do a little bit of history together, because you know I like that. About 1000 BC, King David was the king of Israel. And after David, his son, and he, of course he established Jerusalem, excuse me, he established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, he built the walls. He wanted to build the temple, but he couldn't. 
So who built the temple? Solomon. His son Solomon then builds a temple. And Solomon reigned from about 970 to 930. So we'll just go about 1,000 B.C. was David, about 950 B.C. Solomon um, is, is reigning during this time, and, and at 959, the temple was built by Solomon. Less than 400 years later, because of idolatry and because the Israelites turned their back on God, after God brought them out of the wilderness and into a promised land and established them as a nation and gave them wealth and riches, and the other nations looked at them and said, look what they have, because God had given them success. They should have turned to him, but they turned away from him. And because of that apostasy or because of that adultery is the way God called it, was spiritual adultery because bride had left him for someone else. Because of that, less than 400 years after the temple is built, Nebuchadnezzar shows up by God's command and takes the southern kingdom, the rest of them, into exile. The city of David that David built is totally destroyed. The temple that Solomon built, totally destroyed. Everything burned, everything wiped out, the entire nation in exile. It started with the Assyrians, it was completed through Nebuchadnezzar. So 538 rolls around. So you're talking, what, about 460 years, um, roughly, from David's reign. Cyrus the Great takes out, Nebuch takes out the Babylonian Empire, excuse me, and he becomes the top power. Cyrus was a Persian. And in Isaiah 45, we read this passage in verses 1 through 3. The Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped and subdued nations before him and disarmed kings, to open doors before him, and even gate, city gates will not be shut. He says, I will go before you and level the uneven places. I will shatter the bronze doors and cut the iron bars in two. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the riches from secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord. I am the God of Israel who calls you by name. These are the words of Isaiah 100 years before Cyrus even exists. And God is saying that Cyrus, this Persian, is God's anointed one, his Messiah, who God is going to use to level the nations, and that God was going to reveal himself to Cyrus as the God of Israel. It's like, whoa, there's something really wrong with this. What happened to God's chosen people? Remember, they had turned their back. So in 536, Cyrus told the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. That's where we were in Ezra, Ezra chapters 1 through 6. Cyrus says, hey, listen, you guys go back, rebuild your temple. And they do. About 50,000 of them returned. And then some other things take place, remember, between chapters 6 and 7. So Cyrus was the, was the king of Persia. There's this other guy, Darius. Darius didn't like Cyrus. He overthrew Cyrus took his daughter as his wife. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fun, right? Um, Atassa was her name. And then Darius and Atassa have a son, Ahasuerus, who takes over the throne. Ahasuerus has several, several names. One of them is Xerxes. So we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to read about some events that took place during the reign of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, the grandson of Cyrus, 
who told the Israelites to go back and build the temple. You follow all that? If you're a history nerd, cool. If not, just tune that part out and catch up with the story right now, okay? So Esther chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. And in those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa. So some of those words should sound familiar. The fortress of Susa we've been at. Um, you now have this, this guy's name. Now, Ohasuerus is, is, is the Hebrew or Aramaic name of the king. Xerxes, how many of you have Xerxes in your Bible? Okay, Xerxes is the Greek name. Do any of you have Artaxerxes in there? Some of you have Artaxerxes? Okay, so this gets really weird because Artaxerxes only comes from uh, the Septuagint. It comes from an old Greek version, and it's not the same Artaxerxes that you have in the rest of your Bible. So if this, it can get really confusing if you have that translation. So just kind of think of this as Artaxerxes the first, maybe, but it's really Xerxes or Ahasuerus um, is how you should remember this. It'll make it less confusing down the road. Um, yeah, so... Oh. So, um, yeah, so the setting of the book of Esther is that both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel were in exile. Jerusalem was destroyed. However, under Cyrus of Persia, 50,000 Jews from which two tribes? Benjamin and Judah, and then also the Levites, went from Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Those tribes are going to come up again, so keep those in your mind. Only 50,000 went back, along with the Levites, and uh, Cyrus's grandson is sitting on the throne. So that's the end of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6. And in keeping, um, I'm keeping you really from the best part, which is the story. So let's go back to Esther, and let's just read together for a little bit. Esther chapter 1, verse 2. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa, and he held a feast in the third year of his reign, for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces, he displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. So for about six months, there's this perpetual display of his wealth and opulence, a half a year of just, look at how great I am and how much I have pretty impressive. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar and marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. On drinks, they were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. And the royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to the royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. And Queen Vashti, she also gave a feast for the women 
of King Ahasuerus's palace. Now imagine a week-long festival where the common people and the royalty could mingle together in this amazing garden. Not only could you mingle together and experience all of the, the wealth and the, I mean, you're walking on precious stones and you're walking, and there's mother of pearl and there's just this beautiful garden. And there's wine, lots of wine. As much wine as you want to drink, as a matter of fact, you can ask for whatever wine you want. You have a favorite, just ask for it and they'll give it to you and you can just keep drinking it as much as you want for a week. By the way, this is part of the festival that's still celebrated today. For a week, and the decor, I mean, unbelievable display of wealth here. Between the linens and the marble and the silver, you're talking about just money and wealth. So on the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, you have to catch that part. There's a reason the king gave out wine. He liked it a lot, okay? So the king was feeling good from the wine. Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people, the officials, because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. And so the king became furious, and his anger burned within him. I have to pause there. Because I know many of you women are reading this passage, and you're thinking, good for her, right? I mean, let's, yeah, aren't you? Good for her, not, not bowing to the whims of some drunken king and going parading about like that. She has more dignity than that. Well, that's often... The, the lesson that comes out of this from Vashti, but I don't think that's really what they're talking about in this passage. Just so that you know, I don't think that that's really the lesson about Vashti here. Um, I mean, while the common sentiment is shared that she probably was just, you know, uh, doing this for her own dignity, some Jewish rabbis actually have this belief that, and I don't know where they got this one from, I haven't researched it all down, that Vashti had leprosy and therefore wouldn't come out before the king. I don't know where that one came from. I haven't found it anywhere else, except in some rabbinic thought. Um, others have suggested that because Vashti was also hosting a banquet for all the women, that she wouldn't want to leave the banquet that she was in charge of to go be before the king. And that's probably more likely than she was just being rebellious before the king. Um, now, all of this just reminds us that we like to know the why. That we want to know the motives behind things. But we're not given them. And the book of Esther will drive you insane if you have to know the whys. Because you're not going to get them. It's not part of the, the main lesson. The author kept out the details because it's not the primary focus of the story and thus should probably not be ours. Um, we feel like we have to have an understanding of characters' motives. And, and often in our teaching and preaching, we want to dive into the motives of the characters so that we can come away with a moral lesson or some, something that we can take a hold of. And, and if you listen to the different videos online about why they celebrate this feast, Often you'll hear things like standing up for your rights and those types of things, moral lessons that come out of it. Each culture, I think, will define it differently. And while most are looking for morals, moral rules and examples to imitate, 
That's not the point of the book. And I think we would be really wise to avoid reading into the lesson of this book morality and motives, because they're not given on purpose. While we want to do that, we need to fight the tendency to do that. Because anytime we do that, we're going to fall short of what God intended when the book was written, because it's not written as a morality book. It's not written as, here's 10 things you need to do. It's written about the working of God behind the scenes, not so much about Vashti, or even in this case, some as we get into the book, some of the things that Esther did. Now, in those days, anybody refusing to come before the king could be punished. To disobey the king's order would be punishable by what? Death, right? Now, that's a law. People know that. So pay attention to what happens next in verse 13. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times. For it was his normal procedure to confer with the experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memukin, or Memukin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. So the king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Vashti? since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus's command that was delivered by the eunuchs. Now, Memukin said in the presence of the king and his officials, well, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the people who are in everyone in the kingdom and King Ahasuerus's provinces. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge, and all the women will cause them to, all the women, um, sorry, let me start that over. But the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. So if it meets the king's approval... He should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Medes and Persians so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands, from the greatest to the least. Well, the king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Memekin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Wow. All right, so the author of the book of Esther, we don't actually know who it is, by the way, seems to very much enjoy making the bad guy really bad and the good guy really good. So you're going to see this big contrast. The bad guys are just going to be like crazy bad, and the good guys are just going to be like super good. And so this king, he's a drunkard with a bad temper. He's painted as a man who who wants others to see his power and his opulence and admire him as a leader. His lavishness, all the money that he spent on that party was meant to make him look really good. Look how important I am. 
And then Vashti says, I'm not coming. And all of a sudden, the most powerful man on earth looks like a fool. So what does this most powerful king do? He asks for marriage advice from his counselors. Now, that's meant to make him look a little bit weaker, by the way. He's the king. And he says to his advisors, what does the law say? Now, do you really think the king doesn't know what the law says about someone who disobeys the king? I mean, think about that. You're the king. Somebody disobeyed with you. Disobeyed you. If it wasn't your wife, you'd probably say, kids, go take care of them. Make them disappear. But because it's his wife, he's like, oh, I better check with my counselors. So what do I do? And he goes to his counselors who understood the times, knowing that killing the queen would probably not be a good idea. They come up with another plan, which, by the way, has nothing to do with the law. The king says, what does the law say I should do? And the advisors say, yeah, this isn't about the law. This is about respect. And guys, we're going to lose it all over the place if we don't take, get this under control real fast. So they write a law. Makes them look even weaker, in my opinion. Um, but the author is trying to show the king as someone who wants power but really lacks ultimate power. Who has a display of power and majesty, but it's kind of like all words. There's not a lot of meat to it. He's not like some of the other leaders that we've encountered in the history uh, of Israel and their relationship with their neighbors. Um, so they said, let's make a law and we'll record it in the laws of the Medes and of the Persians so that it cannot be revoked. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Um, actually, from what I've read, that phrase of a law of the Persians cannot be revoked doesn't actually show up in Persian writings, but it does show up in the Bible several times. And one of the other places it shows up is in the book of Daniel, back when um, King Darius was reigning. Daniel chapter 6. Remember, Daniel had some enemies that were trying to trap him. So the enemies, Daniel 6, 7, the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and, enf and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. So you have to understand, generally in our scriptures, when somebody's telling the king of Medo-Persia to do something and to sign it into law, it's usually not a good thing for somebody. It's just a great way to get, I guess, revenge or to, um, to deal with situations that you don't want to deal with in other ways. So this edict goes out. Vashti is no longer queen. She's not even allowed to be in the king's presence. She can't see the king anymore. She's gone. And she's been stripped of her title. She's been stripped of any. She was the head of the banquet for all of the women in the palace. She was the queen of the most powerful nation of the world. But because she refused to go before the king, and the king, in his drunken anger, needed to do something, he sends her away, takes her crown away, and says, she can no longer come and see me. She can no longer be in my presence. I don't ever want to see her face again. End of chapter one. And we get to chapter two. Sometime later, when King Hasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decided against her. So the king's personal attendants suggested 
Well, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king, and let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom, so they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa, and put them under the supervision of Hegei, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. Well, this suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Okay, sometime later, time passes, and we don't know how long. Um, we're not given the details. It was probably at least a couple years later, because um, Ahasuerus was actually busy fighting the Greeks um, for a little while. So probably after he was done with his battle, he got home and realized, oh, yeah, there's that whole Vashti thing. Yeah, nah, doesn't say he was lonely. Doesn't say he regretted it. He said he was thinking about it. He's thinking back on that. And it says sometime later when his rage has cooled down, and then you're like, that's two years later. I don't think that the author is trying to say that it took two years for his rage to cool down. I think it's, it's more that it's trying to emphasize the fact that it was because of his rage that he acted the way he did in the first place. And it did take some time for that to cool down. But this king is known as, a, as an irrational king. He's known as someone who just makes a decision based on emotions, which is not necessarily a great thing for a king to do, right? So his rage cools down. He goes off to war for a little bit, most likely, comes back, and he's thinking about Vashti. He's like, oh, yeah, there's that whole thing. And so he gets some advice, not from his advisors, but from his personal attendants, the people that are around him all day long. And they notice, hey, the king's not quite himself these days. We should do something. So they make a recommendation. He likes it. So apparently he's lonely or regretful. Um, and his attendants say, well, the king obviously misses Vashti. Let's get him a new queen. And then there's this abrupt change in the storyline. And if you were in a play or a movie, this is perfect, right? So the king is in his palace. Maybe he's staring out his window, thinking about Vashti or whatever. We don't know. And his attendants notice there's something not right. So they approach the king and said, King, you know, how about we do something to cheer you up? Let's get you a new queen. And he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. And then you pan away from the palace, and you head down the streets of the fortress of Susa. And as you go through the alleyways, you eventually come to a place where there's a man and a woman. Cousins, actually, but also a caretaker and an adopted daughter, though they were cousins. And as you come in on this Jewish family, you pick up the next part of the story, chapter 2, verse 5. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives, when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took uh, Je Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. So we meet for the first time Mordecai and Esther Esther, his adopted daughter slash cousin. Now, the details we're given about Mordecai are kind of historic and, and positional. Um, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a tribe that almost got wiped out 
because of an awful sin that they committed. And so last minute, they're like, one of the, one, the, the, the other Jews are like, wait, we can't like destroy them completely. And, but we told them they couldn't marry our daughters. So they actually like plotted this whole scheme where their, their women would walk by this one place and then the men would jump out and take the wives because then they wouldn't be giving them, they would be taking them and that was different. It's just a crazy fun story. So the Benjamites almost get wiped out, but don't. They're part of that Southern kingdom. The Benjamites were also the ones who could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, which is rebuilt by this time. So that kind of brings up this interesting scenario. If Mordecai and Esther were Jews from the tribe of Benjamin, and the tribes of Benjamin and Judah were able to go back to Jerusalem, why are they still in Susa? Hmm. They could have been in Jerusalem right now, but they're not. We don't know why. Again, another one of those unanswered questions. We can speculate all we want. Let's see, maybe Mordecai liked his job as gatekeeper. Hey, it's a good gig, you know? Maybe. Maybe he thought that by being close to the king and hearing what was going on, he would also be able to provide information to his fellow Jews. Kind of like having that inside connection for your people. We don't know. Maybe he thought the distance of 940 miles to travel on foot to go back to your homeland was just too much. But he's also a third-generation exiler. His grandfather came over. Now, maybe his, we don't know that his father came over, but we know that he's the third generation. He was born in this area. He was probably born in Susa. It's the only home he's known. Why would you leave a home that you know if you have a nice place and a good job to go back to some other place that's been burned down and torn down? And I mean, think about it. We don't know the motives behind why they're there. What we know is they had a chance to go back. And I will say this, in the book of Esther, it says all of those that, who God had stirred their heart went back to Jerusalem. So the only theological conclusion I can come to is that God had not stirred the heart of Mordecai and Esther to go back. Because we were told that God stirred the hearts of 50,000 of them approximately to go back. Obviously, God had not put that burden on their lives. So again, we want to know the why. We don't get all the why. They're still in Susa. So many details we wish we knew. We just don't get them. We just don't get them. So what details do we get on Esther? So this is our first intro to Esther, and here's what we learn. She had a really nice body. She was really good to look at. And she was an orphan. That's all we get from her. That's it. We know that they're both Jews, and that's significant. Now. This is Jewish literature written from the perspective of a Persian mindset, which is kind of interesting. This is why you don't have the mention of God in here at all. But you mention the king, and you mention his fortresses, and you mention what he owns, and his laws, and his helpers by name, and all the, the systems that he had. So there's very, a lot of detail about the Persian Empire, but it's Jewish literature. And so now that we've introduced the king, and his laws, and his people, and his, and his eunuchs, and his his advisors and, and his attendants, now that we've learned all about them, now we get an introduction to this Jewish family, Mordecai and Esther. And we're going to see how their worlds intertwine, how they collide, how they mesh, and how God is at work even in the midst of this Persian empire. Chapter 2, verse 8. So the king was pleased 
And when the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace, into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. Now the young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Now Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. And Mordecai kind of sounds like a creeper, right? Kind of kind of going up in front of the palace every day to see what's going on. He's not. He's obviously worried and concerned for Esther. And so he's checking in, and that proves that his, his concern was there. Now, I cannot imagine how many women were taken. You have 127 provinces. How many beautiful virgins would there be in each province? No idea, but they collected a bunch of them and brought them all up to Susa, right? How many of you are like getting like nauseated at this whole concept, right? This is the way things work. Now, I'd imagine that the harem was filled with all sorts of stories. I imagine that there were some of these women who were like excited about the possibility that they could be the next king, queen, I mean. Think about that. You could be coming from some province somewhere, out of 127 provinces, have no royal blood in your family, but all of a sudden become queen of the most powerful nation ever. And I imagine there were some women who were just excited about this. I imagine there were others who were probably just ticked off. How dare you take me away from my family? How dare you take me away from my people? I don't want to be a part of your kingdom, but I have no choice. And there's probably some of that. And then, of course, if you're trying to find a story in there, there's probably, you know, those girls who were engaged to somebody else but not married or had some, some person that they loved and were torn away from, their, from the one that they loved and carried off. And I mean, you could have so many stories. This could be like a whole mini-series on Netflix if you wanted it to be. But we don't know about all the women. We don't know how many. We don't know how many from each province. We don't know what the rest of them were like. Again, we don't have all the details. But we do learn a little bit more about Esther. We learn that she was well-liked. That's important. Apparently, there was more to Esther than just a nice body, right? Because she was immediately, she got the approval of Haggai in a way that none of the other women had. She got special treatment. She was given better meals. She had seven servants assigned just to her. And then she was taken to some special places where she would stay with those seven servants, and her beauty treatments got accelerated. Now, what are you talking about beauty treatments? Talk about a year of getting ready to go before the king. A year of beauty treatments. Now, some of you are thinking, not a bad gig, right? I imagine they learned a lot more than just, um, you know, how to put on makeup. And I imagine there's a lot more than just certain baths and cleansing and perfumes that was a part of the process. But if you were going to go before the king, you probably also went through some extensive training on protocol. What you say, what you don't say, how you stand, how you approach, what's wrong, what's right. I mean, I'm sure you had to be prepared so that when you come before the king, you didn't do something that would end up making you like Vashti, right? They had to make sure that you knew how to behave as queen if you were going to go before the king. 
So it was not just, you know, let's take a mud bath. There was a lot more to it than that in getting ready. Um, so we know that she was willing to, that Esther was, was accepted by Haggai and because of her, probably because of her personality and her, and something about her that was different. Um, we also learned that she was willing to take advice and counsel. Later, we're going to see she takes counsel from Haggai, but she also takes counsel from Mordecai. Mordecai gave her a command. Don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. And she kept that command. She took that advice and she listened to it. Now, we don't know if Esther was excited about the possibility of becoming queen, if she was horrified at the idea of being taken in before this Persian ruler, if she was upset, if she was happy. We don't know anything about Esther's responses. We don't get her emotional response. We just know that she went. Boy, I wish we had some answers, don't you? All right, let's keep going. So what, I want to ask a question. Why the secrets? Why did Mordecai want Esther to hide their nationality? Now, this is something that we all notice in this passage. And many times we try to come up with the answer to this. And I think we struggle with it. We're not told why. Now, it could have been because Mordecai was a descendant of King Saul. There's a little factoid in there which means that if Esther was his cousin, she was probably also a descendant of Saul. So for her to marry the Persian king would almost be like the merging of two king lines, King Saul of Israel and the king of Persia. Interesting. Could be that. We don't know. Uh, it could be because of the animosity between other people groups and the Jews. We read about that in Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, right? They faced opposition. People don't like the Jews for some reason. Matter of fact, that still happens today. I asked a Jewish man from Israel what it's like to be a Jew. He said, it's great if you like wearing a target on you because everybody just wants to shoot at you and take what you have. Well, that's the, nothing different from the history of Israel. I'm not sure it was an ethnic concern, though. And the reason I say that is the king collected women from 127 provinces, that's a lot of different ethnic groups. And he collected women from all of them. He didn't say, go collect all the Persian women. He collected them from 127 provinces. There would be foreign women involved in that. So I don't think it has to do with that ethnicity. Matter of fact, later on, he's going to find out that Esther is Jewish. Oh, spoiler alert. Did you guys know that? Because you said you knew the story. And when he finds out, he doesn't immediately put her away, does he? So I don't think that the idea was don't, don't say that you're a Jew because the king might not pick you or because the king might do something horrible to you. I don't think that was the, it at all, and that's often what I find in commentaries. But when you think about it, women from 127 provinces, and when he finds out she's a Jew, he doesn't do anything bad. Don't think that that's really the main point of hiding her ethnicity. So why? Why hide it? We don't know. Again, we don't know. We find out later on that there's a reason that God has it, but why did Mordecai tell her in the first place? We don't know. We just don't. So let's keep going. Esther chapter 2, verse 15. Now, Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai who had adopted her as his own daughter. And when her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. And Esther gained favor 
in the eyes of everyone who saw her. Now, let me just stop there. In other words, she was a real knockout, guys, okay? So you've, you've seen this a thousand times in Disney movies, right? The princess comes in, and everybody at the banquet, they're like, whoa. And this is, supposed, this is the same effect here, guys. When it, she didn't have a conversation with all of them. They weren't saying, oh, she's really intelligent. Esther found favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She came in, and she was a knockout, okay? So just, it's okay. To, all right. So just want to make sure we're clear on that. So she was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Oh, and the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. So he placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. And the king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. And he freed the provinces from paying taxes and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. Now, this is the first real introduction we get to Esther. We learn that she's more than eye candy. She was wise enough to take the advice of Haggai, as well as to keep the commandments of Mordecai. We read that she won the approval in favor of the king and that he loved her more than all the other women. What that means, we don't know. But the point of this search was not just to find a woman for the king. It was to find a woman who would please the king. And Esther was the woman who pleased the king. So she became queen. Now, we don't know what happened to the rest of the women. Um, another unfinished tale to drive you crazy. So what about all the rest of the women? Because she wasn't the last one necessarily. What did they do with the rest of them that were still having beauty treatments? You send them home, keep them for the king? We don't know. So there's some challenges with this passage. Most people look at Esther becoming queen as a triumph for the Jews. And I've been wrestling with this cultural challenge for a little while. From a purely law perspective, going back to the law of Moses, from a purely law perspective, this is not kosher. It's possible that there would have been Jews that thought Esther, what Esther was doing, it was abhorrent. Though I'm not really sure she had any choice in the matter. It's not like Mordecai said, hey, you know, go give it a shot. See if you can become queen. The king collected whomever he wanted from each of the regions. So David asked this question to me. Couldn't she have just refused and fought back and died for the rebellion? You know, it sounds like one of those Star Wars things or whatever. No, that would make it a Disney movie. And that's not really what happens in these days. No, she couldn't just fight back. Um, that wouldn't happen. So Esther is a third-generation exile who never stepped foot in Jerusalem or known what it was like to worship at the temple or meet other Jews or to celebrate feasts. Esther's, Esther may have heard stories about God. Think about that. She may have heard about God from Mordecai, but she'd never stepped foot in a temple, never experienced public worship together with her people, never even knew a nation, never really even belonged to a nation. She knew she was a Jew, but where are they anymore? Is there even, is, is there even an Israel anymore? They're scattered throughout the whole known world at that time as exiles. To see a Jew become queen of a Persian empire 
could possibly look like the entire paganization of Israel. To go from not being a people that's collected to being a people that, I mean, from going from a people that had their own nation and their own headquarters and their own temple to being dispersed everywhere and scattered throughout the known world, to not have your own place of, of worship and your own king, but then to also be living among these people, so much so that you now are marrying into them, even royalty, someone from the line of Saul with the, someone from the line of the king of Persia, it could look like the entire dissolution of the nation of Israel. There's no separation where once the Jews were a chosen people, a, a people set apart for God, now there's no distinction. They not only live among them, they're marrying with them, even ruling side by side, but not under the authority of God. This could look very much like a very dark time from a Jewish perspective. Instead of being a holy people set apart, they've simply become a part of the fabric of this pagan society that served many gods, not just believing in the God of the Jews. While this could look like a positive thing, I have a feeling that for many who knew Esther's identity, it was also a very dark day. I want to read a note from one of my commentaries that says this. This story gives no hint of moral judgment about the actions of Esther, a young Jewish virgin who gave herself to a pagan, uncircumcised Persian king. In the ethic of that era, it was simply a given that the king had the right to collect a harem. More intriguing is the fact of God's working through another divine coincidence. God's sovereignty was at work through the encounter of a pagan king and a Jewish virgin, for it would lead to the rescue of God's people. So he's going to the end of the story to help us understand the meaning of it. But as we look at it just from these first two chapters, we have a Jew, two Jews, who had the right to go back to Jerusalem, who now find themselves in a circumstance where they have no choice but for one of them to go before the king, and Esther goes before the king as a virgin, to be presented to the king and becomes the next queen of Persia. And a Jew marrying an uncircumcised Gentile and ruling a Gentile nation, when they had that, they had the option to go back to Jerusalem. If you only knew this part of the story, I don't think you'd be celebrating that Queen Esther became king. Queen, I mean. I don't think you'd be celebrating the fact that she's a queen now. You might be wondering, how could she? Why would she? How could God allow this to happen? What good could possibly come from this? And this is part of that upside-down kingdom that we've talked about. God is still working through all of this, and we're going to see that God works through it. But sometimes our circumstances are such that we have a hard time seeing God in them. And sometimes the things that God allows to happen even seem contradictory to what we would expect him to do. And yet we'll find that as We've mentioned the deep-rooted theme of this book is that God is always at work doing his work, keeping his promises, even if he seems silent and even if the circumstances don't seem right. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have lessons for us to learn in this story. We know that we can sometimes struggle with our circumstances, that we can sometimes 
feel that you are silent. That we can wrestle with things around us that seem wrong. And yet we're reminded that you are the one who puts people on thrones. That you are the one who orders every man's days. That there is no coincidence, that there are no circumstances that surprise you. But that everything that you do, Father, is ordered and on purpose. So, Father, I pray today that you would teach us to look beyond our circumstances and to see you. Help us to trust you even when we face challenging circumstances. And remind us, Father, that you are always in control and always working, even when we experience your silence. Amen. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to pick up in chapter 3. You're welcome to read ahead. If you do read ahead, feel free to write down how many things you wished were answered that weren't, how many facts you wish you knew that you don't, and be careful not to read into the story a morality that's not there. This is not about standing up for your rights. That's not what this book is about which is where it comes down to today. Matter of fact, that's the predominant theme when it's taught in most places. It's not about that. This is about God working in ways that we don't always understand to keep his promises and to fulfill his work. So have fun with that. And uh, Lord willing, we'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you.